the story. Uh, okay, so let's start here. There's warning labels everywhere in life, right? If you buy a product, it has a warning label on it because chances are somebody did something dumb, right? Some of the warning labels are really dumb. I even brought along a few samples. If Tina, you want to throw the first one up there. Uh, this one was on a, a New Holland tractor, and the warning says, avoid death. Like, you should be able to figure that out on your own uh, without going that far. How about this next one? It's a, it's a vanishing fabric marker. I'm not a crafter uh, or a sewer, but uh, apparently this is a thing, so you can write on it and see what you're doing, uh, but then it vanishes. And the warning label says, uh, should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or legal documents. We should be able to figure that out on our own, right? The next one is probably the worst. It's a washing machine, actually, and it says, literally, do not put any person in this washer. You should be able to figure that out on your own. Uh, there's, they're, they're everywhere. If you just look at the things you own, uh, how about this one? This one's super manly. Who owns a Dremel power tool? Anybody in the room? Yeah, several takers. You can cut metal with it. It's like a little screwdriver drill thing. Uh, it's meant for like cutting metal and wood. And it literally says on the warning label, this product is not intended for use as a dental drill. Uh, would any of you even think to allow anyone who raised their hand and said, I have one of these to drill on your teeth with it? No, it should be obvious. Um, the fifth one, and this one was actually on the website, the manufacturer's website for this costume. It says, this costume does not enable flight or super strength. And because these are so ridiculous, I just thought I'd make it an even half dozen. Uh, I'm kind of hoping this one isn't real. Uh, the other ones were, um, but this one actually is uh, a chainsaw warning label. Is, it, is there next one more in there? Yeah, don't hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. I'm hoping that was a joke. Uh, the other ones are actually from real products. Now, even though these things are just ridiculous, obvious, obvious things, right? We all know there's one reason and one reason only why manufacturers put these warning labels on there, and that's because people are stupid. I tried to think of a nicer way to say that, and it didn't come to me, so that's, that's what I got. Like, people do dumb things, right? You've done dumb things, I've done dumb things. Some people obviously do really absurd things, and then take it upon themselves to take legal action against whomever made the object they did something dumb with. Uh, people do really dumb things, and there's a good chance that somebody did every one of those things that we just saw. Well, we're in this section of the story right now where God has been sending prophets as warning signs to his people over and over, and they just keep re repeating the same mistakes. Like, they just keep blowing right past, ignoring the warnings that he's sending them. And the end result is that at this stage, the entire nation or what's left of it is in captivity. They've been conquered and overtaken by the Babylonian empire. Most of them hauled off to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. Uh, so that's kind of, that's where they're at right now. now uh, this week is chapter 19. I'm not good with coming up for like, with like clever titles, but I'm calling this one order of operations for reasons that I think will become obvious. Uh, so that's that's kind of the theme of where we're going. Uh, you might remember a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the fact, I had this big warning sign right here, is that, that, that jog in the memory a little bit? And we talked about how every year at the Grand Canyon, multiple people die at the Grand Canyon. Even though if you've been there or you've seen pictures, you know there's warning signs everywhere that say, hey, there's a cliff here, dummy. Don't go past this. You might fall. Uh, but in spite of the signs, some of those people fall to their death. Uh, now, the question is, why would anybody ignore an expressly clear warning sign in life? Why would you do that? 
And I think underneath all of the potential reasons is kind of the foundational understanding that I think I know better than the person who put the sign there. Like, I think I know something that they don't. Like, that sign's for other people, because other people are dumb. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I feel like I know something that they don't know. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, my friend Adam here has uh, a job, or he just left his job, but it's way cooler than everyone else here's job. Adam, for several years, worked for Ferrari. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's cooler than your job. I mean, you have, your job's cool, too, but... Um, so let me ask you a question, Adam. When you're driving a Ferrari and you're going down a road, say the speed limit's like 50 miles per hour, and you come to a corner, you know they have those yellow signs with like the recommended speed limit for going around this corner, it's like 35. Uh, are you thinking to yourself, yeah, I should probably slow down to 35? Or do you feel like, that's for like semis and stuff, not for like Ferraris? You double it. Okay, that's the rule of thumb in a Ferrari. Because Adam thinks the person who put the sign there doesn't know what's happening right now. Right? Like, this is how we operate. Now, in fairness to Adam, he's driving a Ferrari, so maybe it is different. I don't know, but that's what we all think, right? We know more than the person who put the signs here. Well, this is what God is doing just over and over and over again. He's sending them prophets who are saying things literally like, don't go that way, go that way. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to go this way. Like, that's, that's what happens, okay? They're just, it's so absurd for us, but they're really not that much different than we are. Uh, God sends these warning signs, and eventually God says, okay, you know what? Go ahead. He just lets them go right past it, and they just keep going over the cliff, and now they're in exile in Babylon. That's what's happening. Uh, So here's what that looks like. Uh, I have a map, Tina, if you want to throw that up there for me. Just jog your memory, going going back just a little ways. Uh, You might remember that a few weeks ago we talked about how the kingdom of Israel was split into a northern kingdom, which uh, retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah, uh, because 10 of the tribes stayed in there, went into the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the one tribe, which was called Judah, uh, became the southern tribe, and then Benjamin kind of filtered into that. So uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, basically what happened to them, you might remember this from about three weeks ago, they were uh, conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, They went into exile, and eventually what happened to them was they just sort of absorbed into the culture and basically were lost to history. They just assimilated into other nations. They do not exist anymore. The southern kingdom, which is Judah, last week we talked about how uh, a few generations later, they were conquered by the Babylonians. We talked about Daniel. He was a really prominent figure in the nation of of Judah at the time. So The southern kingdom was taken into exile, but they still exist as a people group. And now, in chapter 19, they want to go back home. Uh, They probably wanted to go back home the whole time, but God decided that now is the time that it's it's actually going to happen. It's funny how, you know, growing up, like, home is just home. Uh, But then, as you grow up and you maybe, say, go off to college or maybe go off into the military, uh, you get taken away from home for some reason. Or maybe, as an adult, like, you travel for business or something. There's nothing like being taken away from home to make you appreciate home, right? That's, That's where they're at. So they begin to cry out to God. They turn away from their idol worship, their false gods. They repent of their sin. They beg God to bring them back home, and God begins to work miraculously on their behalf. So let's pick up the story. If you you have a Bible or device with you, it'll be in Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. This is is what it says in the second verse. It says, this is what King Cyrus of Persia, he was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me 
to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Okay, so he says, uh, God has, has somehow decided that I'm going to be the ruler of the known world. Of course, he didn't know about other parts of the world where he actually wasn't the king, but uh, he says, God has told me to go and rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem, the Jews' temple where they used to worship God, the very thing that they went and destroyed and then hauled the people away. God is telling me it's time to go back and rebuild that. Now, a couple things to recognize. One, uh, the Bible is not organized chronologically. I feel like it would be helpful if it was, but it's actually the 66 books of the Bible are kind of grouped together by genre, if you will. So uh, some of them are historical books that are grouped together. This is a historical account. This is an account of the history of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, so at this time, it's a literal account of what's happening, kind of like we might watch a World War II documentary or, uh, I don't know, like a cake-making show or something, whatever, whatever it is that you're, you're into. It's an account of real events is basically what I'm saying. The second thing to recognize is that Cyrus is not Jewish. Uh, he doesn't know God. He doesn't worship the God of the Jews. He doesn't have any value for the temple or Jerusalem or anything that's significant to them. And yet, he is compelled to go back and rebuild the temple. Verse 3, he continues talking. He says, any of God's people, the Jews, among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Okay, this is, this is just, you got to get your head around how crazy this is. He's just letting them go. He has this slave labor force, basically, that's driving the economy of his nation, driving the security of his nation, and he's just, he's just letting them go freely. He's just sending them back home to go build the temple. But, but then it gets even more crazy in the next verse. He keeps talking. And in any locality where the survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So here's what he's saying. He's saying to the Babylonians, his people, he's saying, I'm going to send these Jews, I'm going to let them go back and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem, and I want you to pay for it. I want you to give them silver and gold, livestock, whatever they need, we're going to give them whatever they need to go back and build it. Now, they've been gone for a long time. They left the neighborhood. Other people have moved in. He's saying, listen, uh, they're going to come back in. All y'all need to get out. And oh, by the way, when they go to build their city again, you're going to pay for it. Like, okay, I live in a neighborhood. I'm pretty neighborly. If somebody wants to move in next door, I'm not paying for it. Like, they're on their own right there. But that's, that's what's happening. So it, it's pretty, pretty crazy stuff, actually. Uh, why would he do that? Why, why would he do that? What reason would he have for accommodating them so absurdly? This is all we know. In verse 1, right before he started talking, it says, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. The people cried out to God to save them, and he moved on the king's heart. So here's something I want you to keep in mind. You face difficult circumstances. I face difficult circumstances, discomforts, struggles, frustrations of all types, sorrow, uh, broken relationships, impossible situations even. This is the first blank on your card. God can do whatever he wants to do. Uh, I think it's a mistake when we start to pray things like, God, I hope you'll come through on this. Uh, I, think, I think we're selling God short. Like, if it's reasonable to believe that there's a God of the universe... 
it's totally reasonable to believe that he can do whatever he wants to do. Uh, and I think we need to just operate from that same assumption in the same way that they did. That might seem really obvious, but sometimes I just get wrapped up in my own self-importance and just like concerned that the fate of everything rests solely on me, when in reality what I should do is cry out to God and then cooperate with what he wants to do. So the first order of business when they get back is to rebuild the temple. Uh, they start by building the altar, then they lay down the foundation of the temple, and the temple was built... Now, if you've ever seen a, a, a map of what old Jerusalem looked like, the temple is right in the center. It's the hub of their capital city. Uh, it's the hub of their nation. It's right in the middle because the second blank on your card says, God wants to be the center of their lives. God wants to be the center of their lives. He wants to be the center of the activity of the nation, for all the activity of their nation to revolve around their worship. Okay, think about that statement now. He wants the activity of their lives to revolve around their worship. That has never changed, by the way. That is still the case right now. God wants to be the lens through which we see the world, the activity of our life to revolve around our worship. He still wants to be in the center. And for the Jews and for us, that means that our home is where God is. Uh, have you ever been displaced from your home? Yeah, for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of you know what that's like. Life just got upended on you. Home is where God is. Home is where he is at. Not where the heart is, although it would be really great if that was the same place. Home is where God is. So the first thing they did after getting back into Jerusalem was to build the altar. They lay the foundation of the temple. And this is the scene. It's in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, when the seventh month came, seven months since they first set off to go back and rebuild, the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They came together. They were united. They were home. They were of one heart, one mind, and the possibilities for what they could accomplish. They looked around and said, you know what? Seven months ago, we were slaves. And now look at us. We're rebuilding our temple. We're in our own land. We're unified. The possibilities for what they could accomplish when they're united are limitless, seemingly unending. And I'd say for us at Center Church, the possibilities of what we could accomplish when we're united are also limited, limitless. The opposite of limited, actually. Uh, I think the possibilities of what we can do, what our family lives can be like when we're united are limitless. The possibilities for what God's people can accomplish together are limitless. So uh, I look around at us and I'd say, okay, uh, you know, we're a fairly small church. We don't have to be. That's just what we've united around. That's what we've decided. The possibilities for what God could do are totally limitless when we're united, when we come together. Uh, we could rally around the mission to help as many as people as possible to know Jesus and to understand God's will for their lives and for their jobs and their marriages and for raising kids, we could rally around that and see amazing outcomes. Uh, one of the problems in church culture, just kind of around our nation, not, just, not necessarily just here, but just in general, one of the problems is that we all kind of come with our own experiences, right? We all come from different places, which means we come with different expectations, different assumptions, 
And so uh, sometimes, rather than having a heart that's really united uh, around the mission to just show the world how awesome our God is, uh, sometimes we, uh, we get in this spot where uh, we're just lamenting not having what we want. You know what I mean? You ever do that? I, I'm certainly not like pointing any finger at anyone. I do that. Like, rather than get excited about what God might want to do, I sort of just lament the fact that, yeah, I don't know if I really like that. It's not really my style. So uh, we, we have a tendency as a people, as a society, uh, to kind of go there. So let's just acknowledge that there's no such thing as a church where every single person that ever came through the door got exactly what they wanted. That's like, that doesn't exist. But if it was about getting what I want, then it would be a problem. Here's the, here's the thing. The mission of the church isn't about my plans. It's about God's plans. Uh, think about it this way. I'm going to sum up uh, sort of the nuts and bolts, the basic big idea of your plans for your life. Uh, so it's essentially just at the highest level, it's the same for all of us. We all want to have a good life. Have a good life. Those are my plans. Uh, those are the plans that most of us have. Probably looks a little different for you, and like what that might mean for you is probably different than it is for me. Uh, but have a good life. That's, in essence, what we would love to do. But God's plans are totally different. God's plans are, let me work through you to save the world. God is working toward the reconciliation of all things back to himself. He's working toward his own glory. So here's just an irrefutable fact that I just I want to point out about God's church, and that is this. Unity is mission critical. Our mission cannot be accomplished without unity, without agreement about what is the big idea. Now, we will not be all that God has in mind without a unified heart. Great example of this uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is writing a letter to the Christians at Corinth about the importance of unity, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, just as one body, though, sorry, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Just as one body has many parts, and they can't just go different directions, they're one body. That's how it is in the church. That's how it is in a family. A body cannot pull itself in different directions. And what a beautiful scene on this day, seven months after they leave exile, as they all come together, unified, to worship God, to celebrate what God has done. What, what an amazing scene, if you just visualize that. A free people back in their home, united in purpose. They've achieved their goal to return home. Uh, but then, from this day forward, they started to drift, uh, which is not surprising. If you've been following along throughout the story, you, you probably are not surprised. You'd be actually surprised if they didn't start to drift. Uh, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then before you knew it, 16 years had gone by, and they hadn't made any more progress past what happened on this day. They came together on this day to worship, and then the productivity stopped for 16 years. There's literally trees growing through what they built. Uh, crazy stuff. Uh, have you ever started something with like, great enthusiasm, passion, uh, only to like, get distracted by something else? And not like say, oh yeah, no, I'm going to quit that. I don't care about that anymore. I'm going to go over here instead. But you just got focused over here, and this thing sort of drifted off into memory. Uh, it's February right now. So anybody who had a resolution a month and a half ago, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because uh, it's long gone. And you didn't decide that you were going to give up on it. It just happened. Uh, just, uh, sorry, I hope that I didn't mean to be a naysayer. Somebody's probably sticking with something, I'm sure, but I doubt it. Okay. No. <laughs> what happened was they celebrate this, this victory, 
And then slowly but surely, each person kind of forgot about finishing God's house because they're new here. I got to build my house. Uh, they turn their attention to their own desires. Like there's a land grab happening here. There's resources that I got to make sure I go out and get my share of. They start building their own homes and they just simply forgot about building God's house. And their resolve drifted away. Their priorities got out of order. They got backwards. Uh, and now, 16 years later, now this is the really dangerous part, enough time has gone by for an entire generation to go from being children to being adults uh, without really having any concept of what God did to bring them out of exile and reestablish their house. Uh, there's this, there's this uh, sociological cycle that happens. It says, what one generation embraces the next one assumes, the third one forgets altogether. Uh, that's kind of the cycle that we, seem, that we see happening here. They've raised an entire generation that now has put God's plans in second place in their hearts. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Uh, it's actually the quote that's on your card right there. He said, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. His point is that when you operate from a position of greed and self-interest, you surrender the things that really matter. Okay, so back to our algebra equation, our order of operations. Uh, anybody, anybody remember the order of operations? Hit me. PEMDAS, parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, and subtraction. And you have to do them in that order, right? Because, Garrett, what will happen if you do them in a different order? You do addition first, you're going to get a totally different answer. You have to do them in that order. Uh, the acronym, if you're wondering, is please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, although I'm told the kids are going with a different one these days that's a little more uh, fashionable, uh, but it's stuck with me. In order to, to get the right answer, you have to have them in the right order. You can't do addition first because it will incorrectly change everything that comes after it. Make sense? Everything that comes after it will be in the wrong order. Now, watch what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 30. He said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of the other things you need will be given to you as well. He's talking about uh, just our daily needs, our ambitions, our desires, our needs for our life. He says, seek first God's kingdom. God knows what you need. All of these other things are going to be added to you as well. It uh, sounds a lot like what Lewis said, and I'm of the mindset that C.S. Lewis was a plagiarizer. Just kidding. I know that can't go out into, like, internet space. I didn't mean it. Uh, but in context, Jesus is saying God knows everything you need. Seek him, and he'll take care of you. Uh, now, when God promises to give us what we need, like, what's, what's the first thing that you think of that you need? What comes to mind? Food. What else? Shelter, food, shelter. Okay, Maslow, he did his job. We're going right down the hierarchy of needs here. Um, but here's what I find interesting. Uh, I think when we read that, we sort of start there with like the, uh, the assumption of like the things I need for survival. God's going to give me like bare bones, basic survival. Okay, thank you, God. I should probably go out and do my own thing because I want more than just survival. But think about it this way. Uh, if God has plans for your life, we know that he does from Ephesians 2.10. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. He has good works for you to do with your life. And he also promises to supply what we need. Now, just think about this. Wouldn't it be totally unreasonable for God 
to say, hey, these are the plans, but I'm only going to make sure you have enough to survive. No, he's going to give you everything you need to accomplish his plans for your life. So when Jesus says God's going to provide what you need, he's not just saying, hey, bread and water, we're going to make sure you have that and a roof over your head. God knows you need that, but he also knows you need other things to accomplish his plans for your life. And it all starts with seeking him first. So here's our big idea for today. The desired outcome in your life requires the proper order of operations. Seek him first, and then all these other things will be added to you. As Lewis says, if you seek the second thing first, you're probably going to lose both. Nothing's going to work quite right. Uh, I don't think anyone in this particular case among the Jews, I don't think they probably decided, you know what, let's abandon building God's house and worry about ourselves instead. I Fairly confident no one stood up and said that. It's certainly not in the Bible if they did. Uh, probably nobody said, eh, who cares about finishing the temple? I don't think that's what happened. More likely, they started to drift. They got distracted by the cares of life, and before you know it, trees are growing up through the foundation of God's house. Uh, this is how it happens. This is such a great example. Uh, a lot of you know who Rick Warren is, uh, just you know, sort of a celebrity pastor guy, but also just a really amazing man who's written a ton of awesome resources. Several years ago, he came up with this diet plan for his whole church, and it, it came on because he realized he had just let himself go. And uh, it was called the Daniel Plan, if you're wondering where that name came from. Like, he was sort of the originator of this. And the explanation he was giving his church made so much sense to me. Um, he said, you know, it's not like I've totally let myself go. I mean, I've basically just gained like a couple of pounds a year since, since I've been your pastor. That's not the problem. The problem is I've been your pastor for 35 years. <laughs> Right? That's how the drift happens in our life. Uh, slowly but surely. It doesn't happen overnight. Slowly and steadily, second things start to drift into first place. Uh, nobody wakes up and just goes, you know, I'm going to blow up my life today. I think I'm going to go out and just, you know, uh, just grab me a new addiction or have an affair or steal some money and uh, go to prison. Nobody wakes up and thinks like that. Uh, it starts with a small decision that drifts slowly down the wrong path. On the other side of the equation, it's pretty rare for somebody to accidentally drift into an awesome life, too. Uh, it, it happens by intent. Uh, one of the guys in my small group was just talking the other day. We were talking about Valentine's Day, uh, and uh, they have had a child since last Valentine's Day, and he said, yeah, Valentine's Day is you know, a lot different now, a lot, more, a lot less romantic, and uh, he expressed the need to be intentional now that there are more things happening in their life. That's how you get there. Yes and amen to that. A great life happens by design, by intent. Uh, so we make intentional acts over time, and it moves us in the desired direction. But it starts with the order of operations, recognizing, prioritizing the right things. Okay, so God gives them this, uh, this course correction. They're totally distracted. They're way off. Uh, they have forgotten about building God's house, and God helps them reestablish the order of operations. And it's recorded, actually, by uh, a contemporary, another prophet at that time, named Haggai. In Haggai verse one, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. That's how I knew it was Haggai, by the way. Is it a time, God is talking, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? Because uh, apparently paneling was cool way before the 60s. While my house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, but only put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Then go up to the mountain and bring down timber and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Second things had slipped into first place for them, and now they're drifting toward the very things that had led them into slavery a few generations ago, which also were the same things that had led them into all kinds of other destruction through the centuries. They're headed back into bondage, back into poverty, and the time came for them to give careful thought to their ways and return to God's order of operations. Give careful thought to your ways and then return to me. And he promises, as you read on, that if they would return to him, he would restore their land. And we have the same call from God. Seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. God gives us a call to examine ourselves, to put him first, and he will supply us with everything we need for his plan A for our lives. So I just want to flip over really quick to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. We're going to just tie this all together. I just want to show you something that I think is pretty awesome. Uh, and then we're just going to celebrate God's promise through communion together. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the author is in the middle of making this argument that Christ is the definitive work and truth of God. And this is what he says. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. In the story, we've seen this happen over and over to God's people. Time and again, they drift away from God's plan for them. And no matter how clear it is, they just can't stay on the course. So in the New Testament, God sent his son into the world to fix this problem once and for all. We're obviously incapable of following God's instructions, so Jesus is going to come, and he's going to reconcile all of that for all time. God sent his son into the world, and Romans says that the wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned. That's the bad news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. God's going to solve the problem. He's going to end this cycle through Christ. He's going to stop Stop the cycle that looks like this. Uh, I can't, I'm trying and trying and trying to be good enough, but never quite get there. That's the, old, that's the old cycle. The new cycle is, Jesus was good for me, so I'm just going to live in response to that. And now we have the opportunity to just walk in God's blessing and be the object of his mercy, choose to cooperate with his plans. And guess what? We're going to do really well sometimes. We're going to struggle sometimes. But you know what? Because of Jesus, when this life is over... You're going to dwell in his house forever. How about that? We have that to hang on to. We have that hope to hold on to. When it's all over, we have our eternal home. So pay the most careful attention to what you have heard so you do not drift away. If there's one thing we've learned from the story the last few weeks. It's that our soul will drift. If not anchored in Christ, it will drift uh, without exception. No matter how clear or how much resolve we have, to follow God, our soul will drift on its own. It happened to them, it'll happen to us. But we actually have a promise uh, in Hebrews 6.19 that they didn't have. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. It means that we have this anchor. Jesus has paid the bill. He's paid the penalty for death. And he is now in God's presence advocating for every person who puts their faith in him. This is the promise of God that you have through faith in Christ. So I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me. Uh, Jess, can you help me out real quick? Uh, I, want to, I just want to take a moment and I just want to celebrate what Jesus has done for us by observing communion. There should be one of these on your chair or possibly on the floor under your chair now. Uh, I just want to just take a moment. We don't do this super often, uh, but I just want to walk through the meaning of communion. On the night before Jesus was crucified, uh, during what we sometimes call the Last Supper, uh, Jesus is gathered together with his disciples, and he's preparing himself. He knows what's coming, so you can kind of think about what's happening internally to him. Uh, He's preparing himself to be crucified, to be executed the next day. And Paul records this scene for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by Judas, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. In the top of this cup, there's a little piece of bread there. might be a little bit challenging to, to separate it for you. But he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. The wage of sin is death, and Jesus is going to literally pay your penalty on the cross. This is my body that is broken for you. So when you eat this, remember me. Remember that I have paid your penalty for you. How about that? In the same manner, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood establishes a permanent, unbreakable covenant written in blood that your sin can never be held against you because Jesus has paid the bill. How about that? How awesome is that? The cycle that we see happening in the Old Testament, they get it right, they get it wrong, they go into captivity. Uh, that cycle is over for you. The moral scorekeeping between you and God, that's, that's over. There's going to be ups and downs in life. But Jesus has paid the bill, and it's written in blood. It can't be undone. He said, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he also says that we should examine ourselves just as the Old Testament recorded in Haggai, that we should examine ourselves. And for every person who has put their faith in Christ, this promise is for you. So I'm gonna pray, and uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, if, if you put your faith in Christ, I wanna invite you to remember his sacrifice, and then Pastor Rick's gonna come up and, and give us the boot. Lord, thank you so, so much that my bill is paid that I don't have to fight to be reconciled to God. I just am because of you. I just have to trust in you. And as fantastic and wonderful as that seems, uh, it's by far the best alternative because I have proven that I am not capable of being perfect on my own. So thank you that you were perfect for me. 
Lord, thank you for giving us this amazing gift of communion just so that we can remember what you have done for us. And for every person here who's put their faith in Christ, I just want to invite you to celebrate the fact that your bill is paid, that God has promised to provide all that you need to accomplish his plans for your life, and that you're free from the burden of sin, and you are considered a friend of God. You are his child by faith. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Rick.